and gentlemen. That's right. We're back for another one. I am Raba, the CMO of Triple Whale, and I am here with my co-host, partner in crime and gem of a human, Max Blanc. And today we're joined by Pranay Shirini Savasan. Ah, dang it. I practiced it so many times and I messed it up. But he <laughs> is an absolute titan in the supply chain. 26 plus years, he runs an incredible software platform for supply chain and financing called Manufacture. Um, with all the nonsense and hullabaloo going on in the supply chain, we wanted to bring you one of the experts, and we have. Pranay, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's really good to meet you, and Max is always great to catch up again with you. Max is a great friend, and he's been uh, you know, one of our earliest customers in Manufacture. He's there when we had very little software, and uh, he's always been a wonderful supporter of ours. Uh, excited to be on the podcast. I haven't been on a podcast in many, many years, so this is awesome. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. And so I'm out in Austin, our satellite campus. Max is in Columbus. Where does this podcast find you today, Pranay? Uh, I'm in L.A. in Culver City. Oh, cool. Actually, I'm heading out that way for a geek out shortly. Um, okay, let's drill into it. Max, do you want to take it away? Yeah, sure. Well, first, let's hear a bit about Pranay's journey and what he's been doing for his 23 years. Just maybe take uh, you know 60 seconds right now or two minutes to go through some, some of your journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was born in India, uh, brought up in Bombay. Um, used to be it's called Mumbai now, but I know it is Bombay because that's what I grew up in before it was name was changed. Um, I used to, um, I went to college there, high school, all of it done there. Um, and I started working in my family business, my father's business, uh, very early when I was about 14, 15 years old, mostly lifting boxes and moving goods and out of warehouses, you know, earning your team <laughs> and then basically figuring out how to work with the government on exports and imports and documentation and then with banking and debt transactions and figured out how to do sourcing and understood how to do like we should, my first product I sourced was steel toys out of Delhi for a customer in, in Holland that they were basically buying, you know, uh, steel, steel toys that were made authentically by hand, hand rolled steel and were sold as curios, hand painted, you know, those old, uh, you know, those old fire engines, like train engines and yeah. stuff like that. So they yeah. were sold as curios in Europe. And I remember sourcing those in 1994. That's when I first started my sourcing journey. I was still just after, out of 10th grade. So wow. that's when I started sourcing and manufacturing and supply chain and you know um been working i worked with my family business for a while and then i started my own business in 2009 also doing supply chain uh, i've done multiple products multiple industries multiple geographies uh for the last eight years i've been trying to build digital platforms for supply chain and manufacturing and, and sourcing uh, my last startup was called source easy uh source easy basically was a vertically integrated manufacturing platform for clothing. Uh, it was venture-backed uh, by lots of very well-known Silicon Valley investors, including Bullpen Capital, uh, Joanne Wilson, Bloom Ventures in India, 500 startups, uh, Structure Capital. And, uh, you know, that company, we had five offices in five different countries. Uh, we had three offices in the U.S. and we were essentially, imagine what Flexport does, but for clothing, mm -hmm. and that's what we did. That company didn't end in really good circumstances in 2017. It taught me a lot. Uh, you know, the one thing it taught me the most was, you know, be open and transparent about everything that's going down. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, it's really, Max knows this also that, you know, investors, 
find it very hard to trust founders who keep information from them. If you're not over communicating, then the investors don't trust you. And so I was basically having daily board meetings, weekly board meetings as the company was entering into, you know, a tailspin. And uh, it was extremely horrific circumstances, but the company ended up filing for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And then, you know, a week later, those investors put fresh money into a new company that I started, which is now manufactured. And the reason they did that was because they knew exactly what was going on as it happened. And now I run a company called Manufactured since 2018, which is basically a platform to supply and finance inventory. It's different from what we did before in many nuanced ways. But the core idea is the same. Inventory, manufacturing is broken, supply is broken, uh, sales is broken, uh, financing is broken. There's a lot of people who have been running manufacturing and finance and sales. Mm -hmm. Very different in silos. You, if you want to manufacture your product, you go to a factory. If you want to ship your product, you go to a logistics provider. If you want to finance your product, you go to a bank. If you want to finance your, in, your receivables, you go to a factor. If you finance your e-commerce, you go to some of these online lenders. And it's all being siloed into all different things when it's just one product that is driving all of your business that has to be tracked from the time it's made to the time, tracked to the time it's sold and figure out how to make more of it if it's succeeding and less of it if it's not succeeding and figure out how to keep your business successful. That simple thing has basically been complicated and divided into so many 40 different ways. And to think that it's a three, four trillion dollar industry that has been disrupted is something that I feel needs to be corrected. So we combine finance and supply into a single system and we're building software, uh, we're building systems, we're going to build our own credit lines, we're going to build our own businesses to mm, basically so cool. help uh, merchants of any sort buy and sell product without having to worry too much about the supply and the finance in separate places. Mm -hmm. Very good. Um, yeah, just working with Pranay, uh, with my supply chain, I can tell you that uh, he knows what he's doing, knows what he's talking about. <laughs> he's extremely transparent and has been a guide for me throughout my journey. It's great to have him here. Um, so we'll get into the value add segment and uh, I'm just going to fire away some questions and we'll have a conversation around a few different topics here. Um, Let's, can I cut you off there real quick, Max? Let's yeah, drill please. into something because I know we have yeah. some really high level people, um, but we also have some people at a different stage in their journey. Pernay, sure. Can you just kind of explain like what you mean when you say supply chain and kind of just go into like a, ba a basic like 101 primer on supply chain and why it matters for a business? Yes, absolutely. So uh, if you look at the evolution of commerce, uh, if it starts from people in the first century when they basically took camels along the Silk Road and actually started creating bazaars to sell product, it's, it's essentially, it started out with a demand and supply, which is at its most basis reason satisfying someone's need. Uh, now, needs have evolved over time and you, people's need to be satisfied by a product is now more emotional than it is transactional. For example, you go to a store to buy rice because it feeds your stomach and it makes it makes you feel good. But you buy organic basmati rice because it feeds your soul, the stomach, but it also feeds your soul and your emotional need to feel like you're eating a good product that's actually organic, that's good for the industry. So you're now solving multiple needs and you're solving multiple, just you're feeding some multiple needs by creating the product and supplying it. Now, if you look at the evolution of, of commerce, whether it's physical or digital, 
people have basically reached the peak of base level supply and base level feeding of, of needs and they have started creating tertiary needs and ancillary needs which is how brands are created. Now the reason why a brand exists is because it feeds your soul as much as it feeds your meal. And the reason it feeds your soul is because you feel some sort of a connection to it through either the story it tells or whatever it does. Now, if you look at the evolution of digital commerce over the last 20-ish years, that's literally what has happened. If you look at it, but it's been accelerated. It's the digital commerce has accelerated in 20 years what physical commerce did in 2000 years. Uh, if you right. look at physical commerce coming from the time, you know, from the time of Old Testament or whatever it is, from two, three thousand years, that's how trading actually started. Is you started with barter, then you started with money, and then you started with, you know, far more sophisticated ways of moving goods across countries because you're finding something that people need and you're making money on it. Now, if you look at e-commerce, e-commerce basically started out with, you know, highly basic things, which is, can I find something on the internet? Then it went to, okay, can I buy something on the internet? Then it went to, okay, how do I differentiate what I'm selling on the internet? And I think Bonobos was one of the first brands that actually showed you that you can not just have to buy basic stuff on the internet. You can actually create something that is unique for a customer, which is the curved waistband that they created. Now, if you extrapolate that and take that forward to, you know, the millions and millions of brands you have online right now, brands started out by dropshipping product. They dropship right. product because they find something that satisfies a basic need. I mean, like Max. Max basically wanted to find a solution for, for you know, increasing the volume of hair that women have without making it look like crap. And he took something that was aesthetically interesting, like a hair braid, and basically started pushing it through. But over time, mm -hmm. Max also realized that instead of just selling a hair braid, you're now selling an experience that includes the hair braid at the core of it and that experience right. making people feel better about their appearance. And now you'll be able to elevate the story and make a brand out of it. Now you cannot yeah. sell crappy product that just satisfied a need. You have to sell beautiful elevated product and beautiful elevated packaging with a beautiful elevated story that appeals to people, not just at the basic sense, but at an aesthetic ele elevated sense. That yep. means you have to create a unique product now, products come in multiple levels of customization. You can start with a highly basic product which you buy off the shelf. It's like going and buying a stick of cheese. You can buy a stick of cheese off the shelf and mm -hmm. that cheese, somebody decided what to put in it. Somebody decided how to make it. Somebody decided what shape to give it, what to package it, where to sell it and what to price it at. And you just picked it up and did it. You drill all the way down to the materials and you drill all the way down to the packaging, all the way down to the quality of the product, all the way down to the base layer of what makes it special. And then you've suddenly figured out how to unwrap that entire product. Now, e-commerce yep. has been going deeper and deeper, deeper down the rabbit hole, starting from, okay, I just want to take and resell this box of cheese to I want to figure out which cows the milk comes from to where like, the cheese can be made. And what manufacturer <laughs> does with the supply chain is basically help you expand that all the way down to which cows to buy your milk from rather than you just buying a stick of cheese. Right. Pranay, some an interesting thing, you know, in terms of like sort of that, are you going to just resell a stick of cheese or are you going to sell the experience of what it's like to, to, to eat this artisan cheese that's made on this like farm that has a whole family story to it. Like, right. So like you can almost extrapolate that and, and compare it to like, okay, an Amazon purchase, right. There's some kind of right. generic brand to the artisan cheese, right. There's more of like a D to C, you know, direct to consumer brand with the whole story behind yeah. it. So that's right. I think the Amazon is actually interesting because, in a way, Amazon drives a ton of utility. However, yeah. that doesn't really carry over. There's no halo effect for the brand. 
And yeah. so it, it feels like a Costco almost. Like you can still buy yeah. fancy stuff in Costco, right? Like you can get nice electronics, like all this stuff, but you don't really connect with that brand versus like, put it another way, buying an iPhone exactly. in Costco is totally different than buying oh, yeah. it in the Apple store, right? Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. It, that's a kind of interesting paradox there. That was brilliant, Pranay. Yeah, so, great. Can I interject one more question, Max? Go for it. What are, because out of the three of us, you two will know more or forget more than I'll ever know about supply chain. But what are kind of, when you look at like DTC businesses like Max's and per se, what are the biggest cost drivers in the supply chain? So if you look at a supply chain, I think the, you could either look at them as cost or you can look at them as levers, right? So there's multiple costs that you have to balance in the supply chain or there are multiple levers you can pull to figure out what you want to work on and what you don't want to work on. So um, 99% of the time when I meet somebody who comes in and says, oh, I want to fix my supply chain. I'm like, you don't want to fix something that's not broken. So you have to figure out how to balance levers with your cost. So I have customer coming into me and saying, oh my God, China has tariffs of 12%. I need to move to Vietnam immediately. I'm like, okay, so let's do the math. What do you buy? Okay, I buy, um, you know, shovels. I buy shovels to to sell to miners, and I'm buying ten thousand shovels a year. And ten thousand shovels a year costs me ten bucks. So it's a hundred thousand dollars. And now twelve percent of that is twelve thousand dollars. So I'm going to lose twelve thousand dollars on the hundred on ten thousand shovels. And so therefore, if I move to Vietnam, I will basically save that twelve thousand. I said, okay, but you're assuming that number one. You will be able to buy those shovels for $10 out of China, out of Vietnam, as you can out of China. Number two, you're right. assuming that when you stop working in China and you move to Vietnam, you'll find the same vendor that can do the same quality and the same amount of production. You're then going to assume that the materials you're getting out of Vietnam are not actually sourced in China, which means that the materials coming from China take longer and you're going to lose your lead time. But the most important thing is you're going to have to still coordinate Vietnam like you do China. And the switching cost of a vendor going from China to Vietnam is three to six months, which means that you lost 2,500 shovels of sale when you move from China to Vietnam, which means that you lost $25,000 of sale moving from China to Vietnam. That's just your cost, not even what you would sell on. So I suggest you don't move and keep paying, pay the $12,000 and absorb it and just add that cost to yourself rather than you move from China to Vietnam. Now, if you were selling a million shovels, let's talk about that separately. But if you're selling 10,000 shovels, don't move. So when you talk about costs, I talk about levers because the cost affects the levers. Now, when you yeah. talk about a supply chain, you basically have supply, you have basically four aspects to a supply chain. You have the materials, you have the assembly, you have the transportation, and you have the packaging. I mean, you got to have the packaging and then the transportation. So either way, you look at it, right? Now, when yeah. you, you also have duties and taxes that are included in the transportation. So that you have the assembly, you have the materials, you have the assembly, packaging, you have the assembly, you have the transportation that includes the actual shipping of the product and then the duties and taxes. Uh, I can go down deeper into that where the shipping includes your origin shipping, which is basically going from the factory to the to the port. You can have the actual shipping which is between the port to the other to the port it's arriving at, and then the shipping from the port all the way to your door. And nine times out of ten, you almost underestimate what those costs, and you only focus on the port to port because that's like the big story of the world today. But sometimes those internal shipping costs can actually overrun what you're doing on the port as well. Mm. That's so fascinating. And, and that's that's kind of known as the last mile problem, right? Where getting getting it the last mile is kind of really, really hard in terms of logistics and expense. 
that's different. The last mile I'm talking about is at a wholesale level when it's coming to your 3PL or through your warehouse. Oh, yeah, you got it, got it. Yeah, I'm talking from... This is, yeah. yeah, I'm talking warehouse yeah. to consumer. I, I'm tracking now. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yep. You're yep. talking about, so the, there's two kinds of last miles. One is when you have a grocery problem where you're buying from a local store and they have to deliver it to your home. Somebody just walks over and gives you the product. Normally, if you walk to the store, you are the last mile. So you walk to the store, picked up the store the product and came home. You completed your own last mile logistics. So you literally paid yourself for doing that last mile logistics. But let's say they deliver to you, and then that last mile is basically from wherever that product is sitting to your home, that's their last mile. Whereas our last mile is from the port to that person's warehouse from where they will then sell it to the consumer. Oh, that's that's super illuminating. And so I guess small digression there. Is that one of the reasons why Amazon acquired Whole Foods was to essentially eliminate a lot of their last mile costs because they can just ship it to a Whole Foods now and you can pick it when you go to Whole Foods, you can just pick up your Amazon package versus having them to, having them waste money on shipping it from their distributor to the home? I also think that Amazon wanted to get into the more premium range of the Whole Foods consumer. I also yep. think that Amazon Fair wanted point. To, make, to, to basically figure out how to crack grocery. Amazon Fair hasn't point. cracked grocery. They haven't cracked grocery yeah. even today. They don't know. Uh, the Fresh app is all over the place. Whole Foods is all over the place. They still haven't cracked grocery, and that's the reason why Whole Foods was a piece of it. And I think the optional value on basically acquiring Whole Foods for $13 billion dollars for a $2 trillion company was on the margin worth it for totally right. Do. So mm-hmm. that's probably why they did it. But the lockers that you're talking about, I think that that's an expanding business that they're going to get to. And if they can actually eliminate their last mile by doing lockers, it's, it actually saves a layer of complexity on the logistics, which is the routing logistics. You know, um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. basically the problem. The traveling salesman. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Wow. I'm blown away. Yeah. You can definitely see why working with a guy like Pernay is very helpful when it comes to running a DTC brand. There's so many complexities you're not even thinking about. From engineering the packaging to be able to ship better domestically, right? Yeah. To everything. Yeah. Well, right? We had fun with that. We had a lot of fun yeah. with that. We tried to be yeah, able to crack. Yeah. yeah. We able cracked to... the lowest UPS, yeah. low, lowest USPS shipping fee for Max with the, with the sleeve. Yeah, basically going from spending, let's say, three fifty a package to ship it to the customer to like just under a dollar, like seventy five oh, cents or something. I remember now. It, yeah, it was wild. So yeah, there's there's that, so much. that's something you feel for sure. That's that's yeah. some savings right there, Max. Especially when Facebook starts to go crazy. Like if if you're doing a million boxes, if you're doing a million units, then that's like easily three four million dollars a year that you save on shipping. Yep, that's bananas. Uh, it's bananas. It's good stuff. You know, it's good stuff. Um, do we want to get into kind of what's kind of going on now in terms of the I supply so. disruptions, the the traffic jams at the ports, um, kind of what the knock on effects are going to be from that, and and then I guess Pranay, maybe you could take us from the start of how did we get here? How how did the supply chain kind of just crumble and disintegrate, it, and then from that kind of take us through up to kind of uh, today with Nike not even being able to buy yarn? Yeah, so I'm not a macroeconomist. I'm no kind of economist, but I'm going to try and give you my theory on what happens. And I'm 100% sure I'll get emails and, you know, comments (laughs) about it when you guys post this this podcast saying, you know, the cat didn't know shit of what he's talking. But here's my theory. (laughs) Um, If you take, so there's, there's, there's there's a, 
there's a few components to this. First is you basically start any material with a commodity. Any product yep. that you create starts with a commodity. That commodity is either grown or mined or uh, created from, uh, in case of an artificial commodity like polyester or something like that. So if you look at any 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 art any plastic based product, it starts also with plastic. Plastic is created. You will start with any natural product. It is either grown or mined. Uh, and that's basically the three three ways that commodity comes in. Now, in, in two out of these three commodities, one is industrial, the other two are semi-industrial, but they all rely on either some kind of labor or some kind of geopolitical conversation that happens. There's a reason China invests so much money in Africa, so much money in South America, is because yep. they Australia. need those raw materials to come back to them to create these materials, these finished products. They need commodities to come back to them at a cheap price, which they control using infrastructure so that they can bring back the commodity to create raw materials, which are intermediaries that can then turn into finished products. So you take a commodity, then you have an intermediate process intermediary, and then you have finished products. And so yep. everything that finishes in your hands or in your in front of you started with a commodity. You could talk about talk about iron, talk about ore, talk about steel, talk about any metal, talk about any wood. Any, any wood. You talk about anything. It's either grown or mined, something like that. Um, now, what has happened is three things happened at the same time, right? The first thing that happened is um, people went into lockdown during the pandemic and supply reduced like crazy because demand fell off, fell off a cliff. Now, when mm -hmm. demand fell off a cliff, what happened is people who had a surplus of commodities, a surplus of items, only a very few number of those commodities were in demand. And a lot of the other commodities were basically, I mean, Max knows what happened to the price of merit loan during PPE. Like we were tracking yeah. it on an almost daily basis and it fell off a cliff in September because yep. everyone, everything started coming back. Last year of September, it started coming back to normal. But, you know, a commodity price is driven by, by three things, right? It's driven by demand, it's driven by supply, and it's driven by speculation. Those are the only three mm -hmm. things that drive the price of a commodity. Now, in, in the pandemic, what ended up happening is, first of all, you had a limited supply of these commodities. The, the second thing that you had is an unlimited amount of printing of money in every country possible. Like, and it's not just one. Normally, when you the reason you have a financial crisis is because it is localized to one country. In 2008, yeah. America had a financial crisis. Everyone else did. In 2002, Europe had a financial crisis. America didn't. In 1999, sure. the U.S. had and Europe had a financial crisis. Asia didn't. Asia had a financial crisis, the Americans did. So why Japan, is yeah. localized, why it's separated, separated and localized is because those are highly local issues that are happening that then may ripple across other countries, but don't ripple in that way because the governments won't have to step in. When you have a health pandemic like, like we did, China prints money, Japan prints money, India prints money, Europe prints money, US prints money. And what happens is as a result, everyone is printing money and everyone's basis is going down. And so when everyone prints money, all that money has to enter the circulation in some ways. So money enters circulation in three ways, right? It enters into circulation by by basically giving it to the people, literally. The second yeah. is by entering the, the capital markets. And the third is government spending. There's only three ways that money probably enters circulation. So if it enters by giving people, that's the stimulus that you've been seeing. It enters the capital markets, so they basically bought back a shit ton of their either debt or basically increased debt to basically buy back other people's money. Now, because that money goes in from the top down, a lot of the people who have very strong equity values, who basically own a lot of stock, 
end up concentrating a lot of their money with them. And so that's the reason why you see Amazon worth trillion, trillions of dollars is because people who got money printed and basically could put that money, they put it straight into the stock market. And when they put that in the stock market, the most valuable companies appreciate. And when those valuable companies appreciate, the people who own those companies, their net worth appreciates. And that's basically right. the second thing that happened. The third thing that happened was government spending. And government spending hasn't really kept up with the amount of employment that is needed because people are getting free money directly through stimulus, so they don't want to work. And so right. when you take all these three things that are happening, you know, private enterprises are finding it harder and harder to find people to work for them. Uh, labor costs are going through the roof because people are, don't want to, people are having problems with liquidity of cash. And the third part is wealth is not being created equally all over the place because the money spending isn't trickling down fast enough. So now what is happening is the money that was chasing a return, which is coming in through the capital markets, starts chasing money in, in commodities and in through speculation, and which is why the cost of commodities start going up too. Now, if you're not buying commodities and you're speculating in commodities, you're betting on the price that commodities are going to go up. Suddenly, because the price of commodities goes up, the price of the materials go up. If the price of materials go up and the labor is less, you can't find enough material to actually hit the, hit the actual market because prices that want to buy the product are not going up. That's because the demand is suppressed. So imagine that you have a big box store that basically doesn't know how you're going to sell 10,000 units and you decide to place an order for 5,000 units. But those 5,000 units now, because the commodity prices went up because of speculation, suddenly doubled in cost. And now you can't even know if you'll sell the 5,000 units and you cancel your order and you file for bankruptcy and you have 7,000 people, 70,000 people who basically went out of a job because you couldn't afford the cost of the goods to sell enough to people. Now those 70,000 people are entered the labor force but then get stimulus to stay at home for 18 months because the pandemic allow, doesn't allow you to work. And now suddenly they're out of a job and now you don't have labor anymore to actually do what you wanted to do. So now the commodity prices are high, which are speculative. The cost, the actual physical movement of goods is completely stymied and people are out of a job. And that basically is a triple whammy that allows that, that caused this problem to happen. Now, when the economy opened up and people started doing work again and people started getting goods again, everyone's talking about hyperinflation, but that hyperinflation hasn't actually trickled down to the actual cost right. of goods yet. And the reason it hasn't trickled down to the cost of goods is because it's been artificially subsidized by the money that's been printed. Either the government is giving out subsidies or they're giving out incentives or, you know, the workers are working for the same wage because they get extra money on the side. And that money is going to get pulled out of the system over the next three to five years. Now, you could also see them keep printing money, which is why everyone says the word stonks. You know, everything just keeps going up. Nothing goes down. <laughs> <Printer -go> <laughs> yeah, everything keeps going up only because you keep putting money in, printing money to keep the value of those things going up. Then everybody is on the same quote-unquote Ponzi scheme. So if you're China yeah. and, and Max is America and I am, say, Europe, okay, you printed money, he printed money, and I printed money. So between the three of us, we've all agreed that the cost of capital has gone down and therefore the value of goods can basically go up. And so we print more money to make sure that we stay ahead of the curve. It's basically an unending amount of money that you print, which is why the crypto guys think that the cost of a dollar is now completely debased because you can just keep printing paper and everyone keeps spending paper and no one cares. Mm. because the debt ceilings are just theoretical, right? No one really thinks yeah. that debt ceilings are ever going to be real. You can just keep printing money at, at international debt and everybody owes each other money and they all agree to keep, you know, owing each other money and then everyone's just in, the, in on the same group. And so yeah. that trickles down to actual markets in the business where I am producing goods in China 
my Chinese guy doesn't know how to pay his people on time. And so basically he has to figure out how to raise his cost, but he can't raise his cost because I don't have demand at that price. And if I basically buy at that at a higher price and try to sell at a higher price, yeah. the people who have to pay for it at a higher price are out of a job or are in stimulus money and cannot generate in the money to get in. Meanwhile, anybody who's in an equity or a stock market or some sort of a speculative job is making shit tons of money and can afford that. But the percentage of people who can afford speculative income is very low compared to the people who can afford consumption income. And therefore, the consumption income is driving inflation to them, which makes the government print more money. And now you have a spiral. Oh, wow. So what the disparities between the top and the bottom will just get exacerbated a lot more. That's right. Yeah, like, like a lot more around the world and everyone's in on the same thing. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, very interesting. So how much um, – so, so how can how do we explain – I'm trying to connect the dots and I'm sure you can help me here. How do we explain the amount of backup off the ports of like let's say LA and things like that? How does that – is that because of the, the close downs and then the opens and the pent-up demands and then – yeah, so I, I think that it's all about, so this is this is basically uh, two factors going on. One is you had pent up demand and you had a lot of products that had to ship out. Second, you're seeing a number of people get out there and start spending money they hadn't spent for a long time, or they had money they saved up that they haven't spent, or they figured out how to start businesses that they were doing. There's a lot of people out there who think that business and speculative, speculative income basically go hand in hand, which it kind of does in some ways. Because if you build a company, the value of your company is in the eyes of the beholder. Today, if you right. sell a piece of your equity at $10 million, or you sell a piece of your equity at $100 million, it's how much that person is willing to pay for it. So a person who's mm -hmm. in a job who knows they're going to make $60,000 a year for the next 20 years, knows that there is zero speculation they can do on that salary. And they would rather take a jump and figure out how to start a business and get customers to pay them for what they're doing. So you're going from a, a, a world or a generation of employees to a generation of entrepreneurs or business owners or you know self-employees self-employed people that is causing massive amounts of shortage in the labor industry on both sides of the port so that's the mm -hmm. first problem like you there was a notice recently that la port wanted to work nights and weekends and figure out how to do it couldn't get past the union mm. right wow. so that's one problem think, that happened. and then you think right, right so you got the boats that are off the shore there and then yeah. you got to have the crews to unload the boats and then you got to have the mm -hmm. truck put the stuff you know on and then you got to put it to the temporary holding warehouses and then you got to truck it out it's like there's so much that has to happen and so yeah it's it's yeah. It's, it's, it's one thing at wow. a time that happens right it's one thing after another that is happening and if you take those cascades and you compress them into a 60 day 90 day timeline that's how you have 28 boats sitting outside Antigua beach so that's one problem that's happening, but that problem normally eases up. It's called congestion, and congestion normally eases up because your demand and supply is not done. Amazon, on, a, on average, hires between 170 and 300,000 workers every that's Christmas insane. and holiday season as temp workers, and they're gonna they did that same thing at the beginning of COVID. Remember, Max, I told you that your your inventory needs are gonna skyrocket at the beginning of February, at the end of February, early March. Is because mm. that's basically why it happened. Is because if you look at uh, the amount of people that you need to balance out spikes in demand, 
you're not going to see, you're not, you know, the world of supply chain and the world of manufacturing is no longer this like even keel where you just keep going, keep going and you rise little by little. Now it's like peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. You have a lot yeah. and then you have nothing and then you have a lot and then you have nothing. And being able to sustain that needs highly capitalized, highly incentivized and highly motivated people, both from a dollar perspective, both from a time perspective and from a predictability perspective. If I'm making a hat and I think that those hats are going to sell for the next two years, I'm producing as many hats as I can all the time because I know that at the times of congestion and the times of non-congestion, I will then even out on my cost and I'll be able to figure out what the predictability looks like because the sale is never going to be even. The sale is going to be up and down and up and down like it has been now. That's going to be the future for the next three to five years. You're going to have intense periods of activity and intense periods of no activity, intense periods of activity again and no activity again. Whether it's climate change, whether it's pandemics, whether it's you know government problems, whether it's financial problems, whether it's some slowdown, some fight, some war somewhere. This is the new world we live in now. It's, it's all basically like your heartbeat going up and down. And you know the more irregular your heartbeat is, the less healthy you are. Wow. And that's interesting, too, because that starts to really mess with your cash conversion cycle and cash flow, yes. right? Where if you're, if you're pushing out your accounts receivable and that cash conversion cycle gets, starts to elongate, um, then you either need to a, finance some, you know, get some leverage to buy the new inventory or something to bridge till you get paid. So, wow, that more, more important than ever to kind of have a grasp on all that, huh? Right. And the, the thing that I keep talking to, uh, to our customers about and the thing we talk about is like you have to have a balanced strategy about, OK, what do you think will be always needed and you can require? There's also the reason why DTC brands that are too niche or basically too premium suffer. And the reason they suffer is because people in the bottom 20 percent of the audience and the top 10 percent of the audience is basically expanding. And the middle 70% of the audience is shrinking and they are basically getting absorbed by the fringes. So it's the fringes that are actually turning into a larger things and basically turns into the, this business. And so if you have a product offering for people who will buy stuff all the time and then you have, you know, premium product offerings that can basically be, you know, hits driven, that allows you to then have the predictability around the cash flow and your margins then you then have a blended strategy. It's no longer a one and zero strategy. I love that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right, Pranay, you've made it to the rapid fire. That was such an incredible value add segment. All right, I'm going to shoot some questions at you and then uh, yeah, you'll hit us with the answers. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. Learning another language, overrated or underrated? Uh, I'm sorry? Learning another language, overrated or underrated? Underrated. Underrated, because you you speak five languages, correct? Yeah, I speak I speak a bunch of Indian languages. I understand a little bit of French, and I speak uh, and I speak English. So yeah, uh, definitely Fair. underrated. Awesome. Standardized shipping containers, underrated or overrated? Uh, okay, I'm gonna hedge on that. It's it right down the middle. <laughs> I'll tell you why, because it all depends Equally. on the type of product. Yeah. So I would say neutral to that. Okay, cool. Oh, accurately rated. Perfect. Um, the last mile problem, overrated, underrated? Uh, it's overrated. Overrated. I love it. 
Um, inventory management, overrated, underrated? Definitely underrated. Mm. I love it. I love mm -hmm. it. Um, USPS, overrated, underrated? Tremendously underrated. Tremendously underrated. Love it. Uh, best country to operate a factory? Best country to operate a factory. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Not enough context. No, I just think that every country is, you know, kind of buggered in its own way right now. And trade -offs. I think that there's, there's some trade-offs right. for every country. But if I was to operate a factory today, it all depends on whether it's automated or it's manual. So I'll tell, give you two answers. If you have an automated okay. factory, the best place to operate it today is the U.S. If you have a manual factory, which needs a lot of labor, the best place to operate it today is probably Vietnam or Cambodia. Oh, very cool. Those are interesting answers. Uh, what's the, so if you've manufactured countless products, what's been your favorite? My favorite product that I have manufactured, which is a lot of fun. Um, I mean, when I define fun, it's probably, you know, fun, something that didn't give me like a real heart attack. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we used, I used to produce this uh, tube of fabric, which basically would be, you could basically make it in, you could, you could do 27 different things. I used to call them tube heads. They were a kind of bandana. So it's literally just oh. a tube. It's a seamless tube that's probably like 30 inches tall. So you could put it on your nose, you could put it like a balaclava, you could put it on your head, you could put it on your oh, nose, on your clever. throat, everything in your hand, you could put it like a bandana. And you'd like this piece of paper that came with 30 different, that like 30 different ways you could wear that tube. And it was literally a tube of fabric that you could basically do 30 different things with. And that was probably like the it. most fun thing I did. It's the simplest <laughs> and actually the most valuable, the utilitarian thing. And um, it, was, it was nice. That sounds amazing. It sounds like something you'd see on like Sky Mall in the in the plane <laughs> or something like that. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, what's the best uh, Indian meal? The best or like best, yeah, like a best uh, uh, entree or something like that. Probably biryani. What is, what is that? that? So B I R Y A N I biryani is basically like it's got rice, it's got meat, it's got flavored, it's got all this sorts. It's like a uh, I mean, imagine, uh, I don't, have, have, you, have you eaten uh, paella? Uh, Spanish? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. imagine the Indian version of paella with, with all the spices and all the stuff in, in it, like all the works. It's like really okay. rich and really, really like heavy, but it's also amazing. Oh, mm. I love it. That's amazing. Um, favorite place to travel to and why? Uh, favorite place to travel to for me would probably be any island with uh with snorkeling any island that has yeah. a good that's a nice reef and probably because you know when you're underwater people can't talk <laughs> you can still sign though I, i'm scuba certified but yeah you definitely can't talk uh, what's the favorite way you like to spend your time i love spending my time with uh, I, right now i have a 16 month old son so i like spending time with him watching him grow but I really love spending time uh, writing about business, talking about business, and building businesses. I think I love that's my that's probably my passion. I love to, that I get to do what I like to do, and that's my favorite thing to do in the, in, in in life. 
that's that's beautiful for now. Okay, last question. Um, or actually, I got two more for you. What is your favorite book? My favorite book is The Alchemist. Fantastic recommendation. Hmm. Uh, I think that's the second time, right? I think that's the second yeah, rec. Yeah. I love that. That's a fantastic, yeah, yeah. fantastic read. Uh, okay, last question. If you could have dinner with three people, dead or alive, fictional or non-fictional, who would they be and why? Three people, dead or alive. Um, Henry Ford. Uh, hmm. Probably, uh, who is the guy who ran the uh, East India Trading Company? Whoever the guy who started East India Trading Company. Uh, yeah, I'm blanking, but. I forgot the name. East uh, India? Is that what it is? East India Trading? Yeah. 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 East India. And um, probably Akbar. King Akbar. Oh, very cool. How fun. Um, that's fantastic, Pranay. This has been such an amazing ride through the supply chain, just intricacies. Man, it sounds like you just ship it, you know, you buy it and you ship it, but there's just there's so many, like, it's like a Rube Goldberg machine, right? Like, you take the top off and you're like, oh my gosh, there's all this stuff going in here. Um, so I appreciate the time today. Um, how can people find you and give us a little bit more information on manufacturing and how people can get involved there if they uh, need to save some monies and make some more monies. And so, yeah, give us the spiel there. Yeah, absolutely. So we supply and finance inventory. Uh, we do as little as a thousand dollars of inventory, as much as a hundred million dollars of inventory at a time. Um, we are, are we, I'm, I'm, my, mine is, uh, my email is my first name at manufactured.com. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, and you know, you could go to manufactured.com and look at what we do. Uh, we, have, uh, we are a managed marketplace, so we don't really have, we're not Alibaba. So it's like, if you want to, you know, either build a product, add a product, uh, expand your vendor lane, lane change your vendor, uh, you know, stock for financing. Our goal in the middle term is to help brands not sell to roll-up companies. So, yeah. you know, all these roll-ups that are coming, uh, the reason yeah. they're buying roll-ups at the one to $5 million range is because brands have cash flow problems at that level. Yeah. So one of, our, one of our key goals with these brands is to help them skate through it because nobody buys a brand if, you can't, if you're not selling product. Nobody buys a brand if you don't have demand. So if you have demand and you have only an inventory or a cash problem, we want to help those brands actually stay independent so that's basically what we excited about. We also have an amazing affiliate program. So if you're a 3PL or digital marketing agency, or if you are somebody who helps a brand succeed in the world, we will literally pay you for referrals to brands, not just once, but over the period of the, over the first year and help you add manufacturing to your ability for the brands that allow them to stay relevant. 3PLs are getting crowded out you know, marketing agencies are getting crowded out because it's getting harder and harder to build brands without processes and without, you know, uh, without formulas. And so the manufacturing side of it is what we do. We do manufacturing that doesn't come with a formula. We are not AliExpress. You can no longer drop ship something from AliExpress or Oberlo and hope to build a brand on it. You can no longer just buy something of Alibaba and hope to build a brand on it. All those things are gone. Now you have to care about the product you build. You have to worry about yeah. where it's coming from. You need somebody to help you make decisions on every part of that brand process or the product process. And you need to care about how it's sold so that you can buy more. Yeah. And that's what we help. 
Yeah, I love that. We'll put all the links in the show notes so everybody can get involved. Uh, Max, do you have anything else? I think we covered a lot here. Oh, oh yeah, there's Craig, a lot. Is, is the the guy you're looking for from the the Dutch East India Trading Company? Is it Francis Drake? Is that the name? Uh, it's not. It's it's just an East India Trading Company. It was probably started uh, uh, by um, a private person in in Britain. I am. I, I need to find it. I have uh, founded by so oh, John, the... Watts, John Watts, George White. I'm sorry, John Watts. Yeah, that's probably it. Francis Drake was just working for that guy who formed it. Yeah, I got it. it. Was, you see, it's in 1915, 1993. Merchants met and started their intention to basically go. I don't know who these merchants were, but those were the those were the people I would want to talk to. Supply cool. chain killers for sure, just crushers there. All right, folks, we'll wrap up. We are on Twitter at Triple Whale. We can get you into the best analytics tool out there at trytriplewhale.com. Uh, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for stopping in and be sure to sign up for Whale Mail, our newsletter, and we'll see you on the flip. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. That's fantastic, guys. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. So, if people want to really solve their Christmas problem, they still have like sixty days to figure it out. First of all, if you are working through Amazon, I can't help you because Amazon is going to be a shit show in November when they are trying to pull a pull product into their warehouses. A lot of people use uh, FBA and yep. they are up shit creek because they are a huge dependency on Amazon. And Amazon is have trucks up the wazoo despite expanding their capacity a lot. Amazon is probably has the best intelligence on logistics and supply chain anywhere in the world and they know exactly what's going on there on on if you don't fulfill by amazon and you do your own thing the options are number one don't use freight out of china basically figure out uh, fulfillment offshore in china and then start fulfilling individual packages by courier directly to your customers depending on your ticket size and ticket from size. china straight from, from china, china. china and there's plenty of solutions there's solutions yeah, China, for that. I've used yeah, them. China, China or Hong Kong. And so you also accept the duty because under $800 is like free. So you basically are shipping direct to the consumer from there. It could take you a little bit of tooling to do, but you should you should think about that. So you can literally have DHL and FedEx basically consolidate air shipping and bring it in. The three things it does is number one, it normalizes the air freight rate, even if it's a higher price. Right now, air freight's at about $10 a kilo. But if you're shipping direct to consumer and $10 a kilo is the cost of them bringing it, a consolidated list of hundreds of packages to here and then pushing them into the USPS network, it's exactly what people are doing in Mexico for the one, two, three thing where they avoid duties and they have their warehouses overseas, but you're doing it without having to bring the goods over 